But friends, we are in the last uh, kind of installation of this sermon series, walking through the book of Habakkuk. We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 3, if you want to start uh, finding your way there. And, uh, you know, as we've done it, this this has been a series that's really ministered to my heart. Uh, I am encouraged by the fact that uh, God did not shy away from the hard conversations and put them in Scripture so that we can wrestle these things out thousands of years later. Uh, but today we're, we're finishing this up, and the next week we're going to begin a series that will really take us through to the summer, looking at the stories of Jesus, the parables that he told throughout the book of Matthew. And so that's where we're headed. But as we jump into Habakkuk 3 today, um, I'm reading a book, and I'm not, I'm not sure I'm commending it to anyone. I always have to name that when I say things from uh, the pulpit. But it's called uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. There's a title for you, right? It's kind of exciting. Uh, Greg uh, Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt are the authors of this. And, and in it, uh, they begin to battle three what they call untruths that uh, people like myself are teaching the next generation, Gen Z or the iGen, uh, Internet generation, uh, about the world. Uh, and so one of the untruths that he tackles is the untruth of emotional reasoning. Uh, and basically, uh, emotional reasoning is this sense that we we must always trust our feelings. I like to call this the Disney lie. Um, so always trust our feelings. And and you know, as we hear that, we may go, oh, yeah, intuitively, we we kind of get that that uh, we shouldn't always trust our emotions or our feelings. And they give this illustration in the book that's a fascinating one, and it's one that made some sense to me after about a decade being in campus ministry. And it's this picture of a college student who it's his first year away from home. He's a freshman. Uh, he's kind of in the in the doldrums of February, March, right? There's uh, midterms approaching away from his support system. It's dark outside. It's cold outside. And he finds himself feeling quite anxious and actually feeling somewhat depressed. And so uh, what he basically does is says, hey, I'm going to go to the campus counseling center and I'm going to get some help, right? Because he believes that I probably shouldn't trust these emotions too far. I need help walking through them. And so imagine he walks into his counselor's office and he sits down and the counselor looks at him and he and he's like, so you're anxious, huh? He's like, yeah. And then a stern look comes across their face and says, well, you know, when you're anxious, it usually means you're in great danger. And the guy's like, oh, oh boy. Okay. Um, he says, are you very anxious? And the student's like, yeah, I'm, I'm very anxious. And then the counselor says, that may mean you're in very great danger. Have you ever experienced trauma as a kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been some trauma. Mm. You know, those who've experienced trauma are broken and it'll probably follow you for like the rest of your life. <gasps> right? This counseling center's going, or uh, session's going really well, right? By the end, the counselor says, since you're in grave danger and since you're really broken, I want to help you figure out how to hide. Just leave here and just hide uh, because you are in this great danger. So how are you feeling right now if you are this student? Or if you're the parent of this student, what would you say if this was the experience that you just had or they had just had at the counseling center? We should probably ask for their money back and, you know, run. Never go back to that counselor again. And in part, that's because we intuitively know that there are times where our emotions aren't totally trustworthy. 
For this student to continue down that road would likely destroy them. And really what that counselor was doing was saying, hey, this is what it would look like if you truly followed every emotion that you felt. What's funny is I've read this section as I've sat in this book. It's talking about how, you know, parents might be ruining the next generation with this, but I don't think it's a Gen Z thing. I don't think this is an iGen thing. I think this is a cultural thing. You know, if we just sat and watched the last three months since an election, what we've said as a culture is trust the rage generated by or the elation generated by this last election. We live in a time where we say, trust your low view of self, right? We will just follow our low view of self into uh, a tailspin. We'll trust our fears that there will never be enough. There'll never be enough money. There'll never be enough freedom. There'll never be enough love for me. There'll never be enough comfort. And we spend a lot of our lives looking for evidence to back up our emotions rather than the other way around. Like a bad counselor, trusting our feelings can quickly derail and destroy us in life and in our faith. We've talked about this in the past. Our emotions are not the ultimate part of our being. Rather, as C.S. Lewis would say, it's the raw material of our lives that God wishes to take and shape in a Godward manner. Envision Sandy Run Middle School over here where they're doing all of this work. You'll see the the tractor trailers, the trailer portion of all the raw materials of that building sitting there. The intent of that raw material is not to remain in the trailer, but rather to be built uh, to look like what Sandy Run Middle School will one day look. And so here's what's happening with Habakkuk and what we've observed over the course of this book. We've seen him come in with great complaints against God. But then by the end of this book, we will see through lament, through question and answer with God, through remaining in relationship with Him, that He didn't remain in that place, but that complaint turned to contentment. Oftentimes we see this played out throughout the Scriptures, and and our emotions really shaped in places like prayer and poetry and song. And in this last chapter of Habakkuk, this is a song. It's a prayer, and we'll talk about how we know it's a song here in just a moment. But, but here's really the big idea of where we're headed today, is that we move from complaint to contentment as we remain in relationship with and trust in God alone. We move from complaint to contentment as we remain in relationship with and trust in God alone. All right, so Habakkuk chapter 3. I'm going to read, for starters, verses 1 and 2. And here's how it begins. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianath. And he says this, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Let me pray as we get going here this morning. Father, I recognize as I tread into the world of our emotions, Lord, as your word treads into the world of pain and of suffering. That God, there is all this danger, there is always danger of healing wounds lightly, of misrepresenting you and your heart. And so I pray against that uh, as I speak this morning. Lord, would you help me to speak with care? Uh, Lord, not frivolously, but Father, help me to rely on your Spirit. And Holy Spirit, would you guide my words today to represent you well and to love my brothers and sisters who are watching now or in some time in the future. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified most of all, 
uh, and that, uh, Lord, you would shepherd our hearts well through uh, our watching our brother Habakkuk walk through the pain uh, that he has walked through. And so we love you. Thanks for this time. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so there's a funny word as we jumped in. Did you hear it? I could barely pronounce it. Shigianath. What is that? Well, it's said twice in the Bible. This is one of the two times, and nobody really knows what it means. Uh, the only thing that uh, most scholars would agree on is it's some sort of musical term. So it's either talking about the meter of this song or the tune of this song. But the point is, is by the end of this book, Habakkuk erupts into this prayer slash song. Tommy already talked about this, but what we're going to find throughout this book is this is kind of the arc of lament, where God's people, and if you read all the Psalms of lament, all but one start with the heart of God's people lamenting, and by the end, as Tommy said, sounding like a totally different person, giving way to trust and worship in God. His complaining at this point of, the, of this book have, has stopped. He's not fighting, he hasn't fizzled, but rather he's continuing on in faith, as we said a couple of weeks ago. Now here's, uh, somebody joked once, they said, Anthony, if you had a bumper sticker, it would be this, don't hear what I'm not saying, right? And so let me just, let me just tell you, don't hear what I'm not saying. As I get to the end of this book, realize we've talked about this in three other uh, sermons, uh, the pain and the hardship and the suffering that Habakkuk's going through, uh, and so I'm not saying what God says by the end of this is you just need to suck it up. Get over your pain, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get over it, and let's just move on. That is not ever what Scripture tells us. That is not what we've seen in Habakkuk. We've seen God patiently listening to Habakkuk and walking with him as he's processed this in relationship. But what we do see by the end is Habakkuk is singing praise to God and rejoicing even when his circumstances don't match his emotions. And so here's the, here are the rails that are going to guide us. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at uh, the word revive. We're going to look at the word remember. And then we're going to talk about rejoicing. Revive, remember, rejoice. And let's talk about revive. And did you see it there in verse 2? He's praying. He's saying, Your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. He's saying, God, in the midst of these years where you say you're going to judge your people, and then you say you're going to judge the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians... He's saying, in the midst of that really hard work that I don't fully understand, revive the work among your people that you've done in the past. He's praying for revival. And I think there's two reasons that Habakkuk, in the midst of hearing really hard things from God, God did not sugarcoat anything. In the midst of hearing this, I believe the the reason he is able to ask God to do his work despite the difficulty that he sees, is, is two things. The first we see is this idea of reverence. He's come to a place of revering God. And you can see that there in verse 2. He says, Your work, O Lord, do I fear. That word fear is pointing to this idea of reverence. Now, we don't love the term fear in our culture, especially as a motivator, right? Because in our culture, we view the word fear as um, being afraid of somebody who, uh, say, rages at their child. Or we fear somebody who's really angry. Like what, much of what we've seen uh, as we've watched the news in recent days, weeks, months, and years. But that's not quite the type of fear that we have pictured here. I've used this illustration before uh, of this picture of reverence. Uh, one of my friends was in seminary down in Florida. This was back when they were flying the space shuttles. 
Uh, and they would go and they would watch these shuttles take off. And he said, the first time I went, I was in the safe area and we were with our friends, we're hanging out and it's fun beforehand. But the moment those rocket boosters took off, the ground began to shake and we actually felt the heat, even though we were a long way away from these boosters. And the first thought that crossed his mind is, I am way too close. (laughs) That's the picture of some of what Habakkuk has understood as he's listened to God say, this is what I'm going to do among my people. This is what I'm going to do through and to the Babylonians. He's like, oh God, you are far greater than I could ever imagine, and I revere you. Here's the other thing uh, he prays for in the posture of his heart that allows him to pray for revival. He says here, in wrath, remember mercy. You see, he understands that interplay of God in his justice and wrath being validated in what he's getting ready to do. But he also understands the heart of God himself where he says, in wrath, remember mercy. He's saying, show compassion. You know, when we're talking about this reverence, Job, another man in Scripture who engaged with God in in a question-answer series, much longer than this, this would be a longer sermon series, of course, but but here's what happens with Job by the end of his interacting with God. He says, I had only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes, and I take back everything I said, (laughs) and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. In this, there's a picture of reverence and awe, saying, you know, I had already had you in theory, but when I fully experienced who you are, I revere you. And then that whole idea of repentance is understanding that God is just, but also knowing that he can sit before God and saying, God, I'm sorry, because God is compassionate and merciful at the same time. You see, here's what I think we can pull from this, is that we only begin to pray for revival when we truly understand that God is to be revered and that he is both just and merciful. Now, I know this is hard, right? This wrath and mercy thing, it is a hard tension for us. This week, I don't know how this happened, but I ended up on the phone with a buddy of mine I've known for decades. He was working the inauguration, uh, and he just had some time to kill. Uh, And so we went back and forth, and, and he would not say he believes in God at this point in time in his life. But we started talking about this dynamic that as Christians, we're often willing to go, oh, when something good happens in my life, I'm blessed. When something bad happens in my life, you know, God somehow wasn't involved with that at all. And we were talking about the tension of God's sovereignty, right? And that's a real tension that many of us have had to walk through. Sovereignty meaning nothing happens outside of God's control. Well, this week, uh, some friends and I were reading, continuing to read through Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly, and he talks about Lamentations 3.33, Jeremiah writing this uh, as the Babylonians are getting ready to come in and ransack the Israelites, as we've heard about in Habakkuk here. And this is what Lamentations 3.33 says about this affliction. It says, God does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. You see, there's an implicit and an explicit claim here. Implicit, it's saying God is the one who actually is afflicting. Where it says, I will not afflict from the heart. But the explicit claim is basically saying God doesn't do this from his natural inclination, from the depths of his heart. This sets the stage for what we see with Jesus' compassion 
that we find where in Matthew 11 it says Jesus is gentle and lowly. There is compassion even in the midst of God's strange work, as the Puritans would call it, in that his natural inclination is compassion. Here's what Ortland says. He says, God is indeed punishing Israel for their waywardness as the Babylonians sweep through the city. He's sending what they deserve, but his deepest heart is their merciful restoration. He goes on to say, to the degree we believe God is sovereign in all of our affliction, to that degree we are able to be comforted that he does not afflict us from the heart. I think that's what we see Habakkuk landing the plane on right now, is saying, yes, even in your wrath, you are compassionate, you are merciful, I don't fully understand it, but I'm willing to follow, I'm willing to wait, and I'm willing to trust. Here's a second point, and it's this idea of remembering Pick back up with me. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, so feel free to watch the screen. That may be a little bit easier. But he goes on and he says this, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. Before Him was pestilence and plague followed at His heels. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation. The sun and moon stood still in their place, and at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying them bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging in mighty waters. Here's what's going on here. Uh, Habakkuk is remembering. And it's funny, I think I sound like a broken record. I think if there was one title of a bullet point that I've used in, in more sermons than anything else, it's the term remember. Remember. In our home group this week, we talked about how uh, one of the habits of the heart of the follower of Christ is to continually remember who he is because we are so prone to forget. And so here's what Habakkuk is saying. He's saying, God, I remember that you have been a warrior for your people in the past. Verse 3, he mentions Taman and Mount Paran. This is the region of Edom and Mount Sinai, south of Judah. This is essentially him remembering when God brought his people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. Verse 5, he talks about pestilence and plague. This is remembering the ten plagues that God used to set his people free. Verses 8 to 10, there's a lot of water imagery and God riding on a chariot and destroying his enemies. That's the picture of the Red Sea. And God being a warrior and destroying the people who are after God's people. And in verse 11, you see him see this, say the sun and the moon stood still in their place. This is remembering Joshua and where God uh, caused the sun to stand still so that God's people could win a battle. And then after that, you see uh, him remembering, God, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. Habakkuk's not just taking joy in a violent God. What he's doing is he's saying, God, I remember in years past where you have been faithful to your people time and time again, faithful to your promises, faithful to deliver them by destroying your enemies and our enemies. And for someone who's getting ready to face the enemy yet again, 
That is a comforting thought. So he moves from the pronouns you, you, you to I in verse 16. And he says this, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. You see, his understanding of God being a faithful warrior for his people enables him to wait, even though he has not yet faced, and he knows he has not yet faced the worst that God has called them to. Now again, here's, not, here's what God is not saying. He's not saying, Habakkuk, suck it up. But what Habakkuk is saying and what God is revealing to him is God is putting him in a place of waiting. And in that place of waiting, he is calling him to trust him, that he is who he says he is. And friends, as I look across this room, I see the face of many who are waiting, many who must trust, many who have to walk a road that you do not want to walk. And unless we constantly remember who God is, we will buckle under the struggle. Waiting on the Lord is often not easy for us because only the Lord knows exactly how long it will take for Him to fulfill His promises. But nevertheless, He calls His followers, Christians today, to remember the God who was faithful through history. There was a circumstance here a couple of years ago where um, I was at a conference. It was in my hometown. I was just attending Uh, And then one of the speakers fell ill and needed to go to the hospital. And one of the people who ran the conference said, hey, you're from this area. Can you go and meet this person, uh, meet the paramedics, uh, go to the hospital and just help coordinate because you know the area and how to get from point A to point B. And I felt out of sorts. I I knew uh, this person who was sick, but not like hospital trip sick. Uh, So I just went. I was like, Lord, what on earth is going to go? What's going to happen? So we go and we're in the hospital and it's me and this brother and and um, a person who uh, was a pastor of theirs in years past was called to come. Now, it so happened, now you might not know who this guy is. I'm not going to tell you his name just to protect identities, but I'll call him Philip. Um, but Philip was called this pastor, and this was a pastor who in seminary was kind of like a little bit of a nerdy pastor rock star to us, um, you know, pastors in training, uh, where he came and he spoke and he did some of our preaching lectures and he spoke at our general assembly and, and he was just so compassionate and empathetic. And I'm like, he's coming? Like here, I'm going to hang out with him and this person in this situation. What on earth? And so he shows up and I get taken to pastor school. I learn what it looks like to be a pastor of somebody who is walking a road that I can't stop them from having to go down. That I can't slap a God's going to work all this thing out because I just don't know. And I watch this pastor call my friend's spouse and just say, I'm so sorry God has called you to such a hard road. I don't know why, but I know he's faithful. Can I just pray for you to give you, to help you have faith to trust him? And I just listen to this man's prayer, and I'm just going, oh, Lord, this is holy ground. And then we go into my friend's bedside, and and after talking a little bit, uh, this brother says, hey, you know what? I don't think we have anything else to really talk about. I would love to sing And he just sang over him this hymn about God's faithfulness 
and who He is. And friends, to me, that was just such a beautiful, real-time picture of what God calls us to on these challenging roads. I was watching a man who had had a life of fostering habits of the heart, of remembering who God is and His faithfulness. And I watched him help another friend foster those same habits of the heart, being shaped by songs of God's faithfulness. That's what we've done this morning in our worship, is we've remembered and we've sung to God of His faithfulness to help us through a pandemic, to help us through a political season, to help us as we face death. We must constantly remember who our God is and His faithfulness to us. Well, finally, I'm going to read this last section. Let me just, before I read it, how do you think Habakkuk would respond? I mean, listen to what he says here. He's like, he's like, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, yet I will wait. It's not a rosy picture. He knows he's getting ready to face the worst, to get whisked away into captivity. He will probably die in captivity, not seeing these promises answered. How do you think he responds? Well, let's read. 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Ready? Ready? He's really going to go downhill. Not really. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like a deer. He makes me tread on high places. We're back in a tower. We're back in a high place. And those are the last words of this passage. What happened? Well, Habakkuk recognized this simple principle that we see throughout Scripture. When we have no more, that's when we have everything. When we are at our weakest, that's when we're finally able to rely on that which is truly strong. Nothing left. Where did I get that from? Did you read verse 17? There's no figs on the tree. There's no grapes on the vine. There's no olives to press for olive oil. There's no wheat in the field. There's no flock in the fold. There's nothing we can go to the temple to sacrifice for our sins. There's nothing to eat. There's nothing uh, to pull the sled, right, to do the work. In an agricultural society, there's nothing left. Nothing left. When he has no more, that's when they have everything. I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's the only thing he has left. Is salvation. God the Lord is my rock, my strength. James Montgomery Boyce says this, what makes this chapter, and particularly the final verses, so forceful, in my judgment, is that the courageous way in which Habakkuk embraces all the calamities he can imagine and nevertheless triumphs over them in the knowledge and love of his Savior. It's similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about his thorn, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient to you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. We walked the dog for some friends over the Christmas holiday, and there was one point where I turned a corner, and there was this pile of obscure articles on the ground, a carrot, a scarf, and a hat. 
And I was like, that's weird. Why is that there? And I realized it was right after a snowstorm and it was a snowman carcass. Um, and you know what I think Habakkuk is recognizing is, is it's very easy for us to build our lives around that which is going to melt away. Our physical life, our money, our food, our stuff, our politics. It's all going to melt. And it's in that moment when we see everything that is temporal to be truly weak, that we can be strong in that which lasts. Habakkuk did not rely on his own feelings. He remained in relationship with God, and he helped him see who God was. The Chaldeans rose to power. They took God's people into exile. The Chaldeans were ultimately, or the Babylonians were ultimately defeated. A remnant returned. A temple was built. But we are looking back from a different vantage point where we see even more clearly God's promises fulfilled in 2 Corinthians. We've already read it. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Even the ones He made to Habakkuk. They weren't answered in His lifetime. But they were and they will ultimately be answered in the person of Jesus Christ. We can look back and see Jesus, the Savior who came, the most hopeless and helpless situation of all time, when Jesus was hung on a tree, where God's wrath and mercy perfectly met. As we remain in relationship with that God, we can be moved from complaint to contentment. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, for my friends who are walking this road, that we don't know why you've called them down it, and Lord, we even question your goodness in the midst of it, I pray for them that you would give them perseverance right now to remain in that relationship with you. Lord, that you would enable them to have that moment of complaint because that moment of complaint was never condemned by you in this book. Give them freedom to complain to you, to cry out to you. Give them boldness to actually come to you instead of fizzling and walking away from the faith. But Lord, I pray that there comes this mighty and miraculous moment where you work in their hardships to bring them to a point of contentment and able to rejoice even as the world around them melts away. And Lord, for my friends who are not in relationship with you, God, who don't have this hope of the God of their salvation, who are navigating these waters without a guide, without anyone at the helm trying to navigate our own emotions, I pray that they would see your open invitation for them to enter into that relationship with you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Lord, go with us this morning, we pray. pray these things in your name. Amen.